0: Garun Vaishnavamstra, Shri Rupamsa, Tam Sahagana, Ragana, Tam, Bittams, Tam, Sajivam, sadvaitam Sadvadutam, Padichana, Sahita, Krishna, Chaitanya Devam, Radha, Krishna, Padam, Sahagana, Lalita, sri Vishakam, Bittamscha, Panchakapa, Trubias Chaki, Pasindaviba, Chappati, Tanampa, Venavio, namo Namaha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudeva. Maya February 29th Yes, it is the 29th. It's a leap year. 2016 Skype class over Hilo, Hawaii. Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3. Chapter 9, Brahma's Prayers for the Creative Energy. I'm going to be reading text 43, as there's no purport. Yes, there's no purport. We're going to ask go 1 to 44 and finish the chapter. So, 43. Sarva-Veda-Maya-Nedam Atmanatma-Tmayogina-Yonina Pajahashridjata purvam. Pajahashridjata purvam.
1: Yaschamaya
0: nu Yaschamaya nusherate.
1: Ya nusherate.
0: Translation by Srila Prabhupada. By following my instructions, you can now generate the living entities as before, by dint of your complete Vedic wisdom. And the body you have received from me, the supreme cause of everything. It's interesting, Vishnu Chakravati Thakur wrote a purport to this verse, but Srila Prabhupada did not purport it. We're going to go on to the last verse of the chapter, text 44. Maitreya uvacha tasma evam jagat shrastre pradhana purusheshvara vrajedam swena rupena kanjana Tiro dade. the sage Maitreya said, after instructing Brahma, the creator of the universe, to expand, the primal Lord, the personality of Godhead, in his personal form as Narayana, disappeared. Purport. Before his activity in creating the universe, Brahma saw the Lord. That is the explanation of the Chattu Sloki Bhagavatam, Shrimad Bhagavatam 29, 33, 34, 35, 36. When the creation awaited Brahma's activity, Brahma saw the Lord, And therefore the Lord existed in his personal form before the creation. His eternal form is not created by by the attempt of Brahma as imagined by less intelligent men. The personality of God had appeared as he is before Brahma, and he disappeared from him in the same form, which is not materially tinged. The two translations, By following my instructions, you can now generate the living entities as before, by dint of your complete Vedic wisdom and the body you have directly received from me, the supreme cause of everything. The sage Maitreya said, after instructing Brahma, the creator of the universe, to expand, the primal lore, the personality of Godhead, in his personal form as Narayana, disappeared. This is a very typical scenario. Krishna comes, as Krishna, as Vishnu, whatever, gives some instruction, gives some solace, and disappears. He says, okay, I'm going. He's not, he doesn't uh, belong to us. Of course, the residents of Vrindavan have a sense of Krishna is mine, mamata. Rupa Goswami, in talking about developing the sentiments of the Vrajvasis, says that one must develop the sense of mamata. Krishna is mine. And Srila Prabhupada, in speaking about being without Possessions. One of the qualities of the devotees is to be without possessions. And you might say, well, each of us most likely has quite a great deal of possessions. In fact, even if we say we have very few possessions, I'm sure we have more than we think we have. I, I lived for many years without a home base, and during those years, I kept my possessions in boxes in various devotees' homes in the London area and I had a whole catalogue of what I had in the boxes so I could find things easily I think I had maybe 22, 23 boxes and most of them were books so I had one box of clothes I had one box of deity paraphernalia extra incense and so forth and uh, everything else was books but still there was a lot of possessions you know when somebody would say well we can't keep your stuff here anymore it was a, a big deal to move, you know, 22 boxes to a new location. So what do we mean that the devotee has no possessions? Prabhupada says, a really the only possession the devotee has is Krishna. That, whether Krishna, sampadevi, padejivani, whether Krishna gives or takes, Prabhupada says, when Krishna gives with ten hands, you can hardly receive it. <laughs> and when Krishna takes with his ten hands, you can't hold on to it. But the devotee, my point here is that the devotee, however much it may seem that they have possessions, whether they live in a big palace like the Pandavas with uncountable possessions, or whether they are the traditional sannyasis, just reading in the Seventh Canto yesterday about the traditional sannyasis who would have just a kamandalu and a danda. Now, of course, Sri Chichen Mahaprabhu traveled with four sets of clothes. So he had a Brahmin carry his stuff. But even if you have a very uh, small amount of possessions. Really, the only thing the devotee possesses is Krishna. And indeed, they possess Krishna. Prabhupada says, you cannot become free of possessions in the material sense unless you possess Krishna. You cannot possess nothing. The Mayavadi say, well, being free of possessions means you possess nothing. They live as the Nagababas do, where they have nothing at all. They don't even have underwear, kopins, simply... Uh, naked, uh, even then you can say well you have a body, you have a mind and you, you certainly possess these things but if one really wants to be without possessions, he says yes, Krishna is mine, and this sense of ahamma meti I am the Lord and everything around me is mine, becomes transferred I am Krishna's, and Krishna is mine could we say then that the devotee owns Krishna well Yes, Prabhupada says the pure devotee has Krishna in the palm of their hand. But at the same time, Krishna, whenever he wants to, disappears. And he disappears from everyone, not just from Brahma. He disappears even from the, as Prabhupada would say, topmost, a word that Srila Prabhupada likes to use a lot, the topmost devotees, the gopis, during the topmost lila, the um, rasa lila dance. So the, the most exalted devotees, at the most exalted uh, lila, and still Krishna just disappears. He simply, uh, tirodhaye, we have this uh, virada, viroda, to be absent, to be disappeared. And the gopis are thrown into lamentation, he leaves Rindavan in- entirely, although it says, uh, Goloka eva nivasatyekilatma bhutha. Still, he leaves Goloka entirely, leaves Vrindavan entirely, goes to Mathura, goes to Dwaraka. You can say he's still there and so forth, but the residents of Vrindavan uh, uh, respectfully disagree. They say, we don't see Krishna. Krishna has vanished. Where is he? Where is Krishna? So, if you own somebody, they can't just disappear at will, isn't it? And we have the extra- extraordinary situation with Raghunath Goswami where he's a, a grown man married man and yet his parents were keeping him captive with guards you know in our modern society his parents would be arrested for that but in those days evidently it was all right that you kept your grown married child a prisoner in your house with guards of course Raghunath Goswami managed to escape uh, but if if you own somebody then you, have, you can tie them up. You can imprison them. Just like people own animals and they have fences and gates, leashes, you know, collars, the animals can't get away. So, although the devotee in one sense owns Krishna, Krishna is independent. In fact, that's one of the most attractive features of the Lord, is that he is independent. Not only is he the most beautiful, the most wise, uh, the most wealthy the most famous, all of the factors that make people very attractive. People are very attracted to uh, sports stars and business, successful business people and actors and uh, so many things, scientists, people who have these qualities. But the most attractive, frankly, of all of the qualities is renunciation. There's nothing more attractive than renunciation, and without renunciation, the other qualities are not attractive if somebody is very beautiful, very intelligent, very rich, but also very attached. So that is not so attractive if they're very uh, narcissistic. So Krishna is very detached. (laughs) And he can disappear at any time. Although he has so much love for Brahma. And although in one sense you can say Brahma has him uh, within his his grasp that he owns him. But as I say, this is what makes Krishna very attractive and in fact among the gopis who uh, one can say they own krishna mamata krishna is mine the, they like this the parikhiya by definition means that krishna belong you know somebody belongs to somebody else well there's a sense of the married gopis we belong to somebody else In all the residents of Vrindavan, they're thinking maybe Krishna really is the son of Vasudeva and Devaki. Maybe he belongs to somebody else. Maybe he's going to leave. And of course, in Mathura Dwarka, they're also thinking like that. Krishna is more attached to, to uh, Nandimarg and Mother Yasoda. He wakes up in the middle of the night in the queen's palaces, saying the names of the gopis. And so, all of Krishna's devotees, wherever they are. They always have this sense that Krishna belongs to someone else, or I belong to someone else, or we both belong to someone else. And at any moment, Krishna can leave. At any moment, Krishna can disappear. And in fact, he does. He's always going and coming. He's with his parents in the morning. He goes to the forest in the middle of the day. He's with the cowherd boys. Then he goes to be with the gopis. He's with the gopis. Then he goes back to be with his parents. He's in Vrindavan. He goes to Mathura. He's in Mathura. he goes to Dwaraka. So Krishna disappears. So in that sense, uh, although Krishna is ours, Krishna is independent. And not only can we not really own Krishna, although in a sense we can own Krishna as our only possession, but nor can we create Krishna. So Prabhupada makes that point, that... uh, His his eternal form is not created by the attempt of Brahma. And philosophers like to say that the conception of God, particularly of a personal God, is simply anthropomorphism. It's a childish thing, they like to say. You know, we look around the space that we're in, we see so many things. I assume most of us are in a building... Maybe some of you in a car, in some, you see some objects made by humans, the walls, the floors, right? the roads. Maybe there's pictures on your wall that were painted by humans. You're wearing clothes that were created by humans. So the these atheistic philosophers say that, well, we just extrapolate and we say, somebody made my clothes, you know, my my clothes here, they have some flowers in the designs so we say well someone made the flower design somebody must have made the flower and just like a person made the flower design so somebody some person must have made the real flower but this is just our imagination they say that we're just we're just creating this out of our own limited experience so is that a fact that God is simply our creation This is the main teaching of the modern secular society which says, see the world without God. Explain everything without reference to God. Don't talk about God. If you're going to talk about social solutions, don't reference God. If you're going to talk about political solutions, don't reference God. If you're going to talk about history, don't reference God. If you're going to talk about your history, don't reference God. Hmm. Because he's, he's separate, he's out of the picture. He's just some creation of primitive beings. You can simply give a scientific explanation of everything. So, they say that man has a need to create a god. In fact, there's been tests showing, different studies showing, that there's a part of the brain that tends to be religious. How much faith one can put in such such tests is another thing. But it seems that human beings have a need to explain things in terms, in terms of the supernatural. And our evidence here that Chilaprabhu is giving is that God must be there before the creation, therefore he cannot be our creation. The conclusion of which would be that what we are seeking to understand by our natural proclivity is something that's beyond our material experience. So man does have a need to explain things in terms of God. And such is one of the main differentiations between humans and animals. For years, they used to say the main difference was that only humans use tools. And then biologists found out that there were animals that used tools. Otters use a rock to open up a shell and eat their food, and chimpanzees use sticks to capture termites and eat them, and so forth. And there's all sorts of tools, simple tools, obviously, that the animals use and then they said well it's language only human beings have language and now it's found that many animals can develop language up to the level of a three to five year old human child in fact not only the great apes like chimpanzees and gorillas have been taught to speak with sign language they don't have the vocal apparatus to make sounds, to make words the way that we humans do, but they've been able to communicate ideas with sign language. And interestingly enough, not only among the primates, not even only among the mammals, but among the birds. So there are birds who are able to mimic human speech uh, practically perfectly like parrots. And there's been at least two parrots that have been studied that can engage in regular conversation. Again, at the level of like a two or three year old human child. They can put together sentences and, and they can express their own ideas. They're not simply mimicking. They're able to They say things like, you know, we're, I'm done talking now, I, I want to stop the session and go have something to eat. And they're not trained to say those particular sentences. They put the words together and are engaging in something that's genuine communication. Certainly, animals and human beings also have very developed social systems. In fact, we could say that some animals have more developed social systems, the ants and the bees, than human beings. They have a lot of them. Many of them are more clever and abled than human beings, in their physical ability, their abilities to fly, to swim, to see, to smell, to build, are often far surpassed that of the human beings. But the animals, as far as we can tell, There is no sense of religion, Shiva Prabhupada would often say, among the animals. You don't find a religious system. You don't find some process of worship. You don't even find an animal asking, Who am I? Even a sense of my existence, really understanding that I exist, appears to be absent in most animals. So the human beings have a sense of Why? Why? Why do I exist? Why am I here? As one group put it to Srila Prabhupada in South America, why is there anything? Why does anything exist at all? Why is there a world? Uh, of course, the big one is, why do I suffer? Why do I get sick? Right? Some of my grandkids were very sick the other day, and one of them asked me, why do we get sick? Why is there difficulty? Why is there disparity? Why are some people rich, some people poor? Two people both equally talented, work equally hard, equally ambitious, and one makes more money than the other, why? Why do some people find a happy marital situation from a young age and other people uh, go their whole life and never find any suitable partner, why? So only the human beings ask these why questions. There's a stage in childhood where children are constantly asking why. And only human beings answer that why question with reference to a creator, a god. And traditionally, human beings have understood the the god, the creator, and the maintainer, the overseer, as being personal. So we would say, you know, the evolutionists say, again, that this is just something childish, because according to the evolutionists, we are simply animals. That somehow or other developed not only sophistication of of language and culture, far beyond what any animals can do, but also somehow or other we developed this aspect of theology and philosophy, which doesn't have any particular functional, survival, adaptive value, does it? The animals survive just fine without religion and philosophy, don't they? So why, according to Darwinian understanding, would we humans have developed such a thing? In fact, the materialistic, secular Darwinian view is that we should jettison it. Karl Marx said that simply religion is the opiate of the people. It doesn't have any survival value. It doesn't have any practical value, they say. Get rid of it. But he hasn't been successful at getting rid of it. These communist countries that severely punish people who believe in God were not successful in eradicating religion. It simply went underground. In fact, when religious people are persecuted for being religious, their religious fervor strengthens. And as soon as the external restraints are released, then religion flourishes even stronger than before. So that's their theory. But the Vedas tell us, Agatya Brahma Jignasa, now is the time to inquire into the spirit that the reason that human beings, the reason that in the human form, we need, we have a need, a drive to explain things in terms of the supernatural is because our consciousness is more developed, because we have more awareness The primary difference between us and the animals is we are more aware. We are not as covered by the modes of material nature. And that is our our driving need to explain, to understand. So much research, so much time, so much study, so much effort. To understand, to find what is the cause. And are saying that because somebody made the flower designs on my clothes, somebody must have must have made the real flower. That's not childish, that's intelligent. It's childish to say that the real flower doesn't require an artist. You know, the child thinks the cars are driving, or are moving automatically on the road. And the adult understands that somebody's driving them. The child thinks the... The traffic lights, as they say in South Africa, the robots just work automatically. But the adult knows somebody's engineered it, somebody's programmed it, somebody's maintaining it. It may not be there's not somebody at the light, you know, switching it off and on, but there's there's a person, ultimately one person who's in charge, and many persons controlling it. That's intelligence. And the modern scientists have not been able to explain the supreme cause except by saying that there isn't any. Of course, they also explain things in supernatural ways. We've talked about this many times. The human need for the supernatural. The modern scientists who say there was an infinitesimally small, infinitely dense, infinitely small and infinitely dense, that's supernatural. That's impossible by the laws of nature as we know it chunk of matter that appeared from nothing first there was nothing and then there was this infinitely small infinitely dense chunk well that contradicts the laws of nature as we know it there's conservation of energy energy cannot be created or destroyed how can there be nothing and then be this uh, supernatural chunk and then it explodes and in in its explosion it creates order by the laws of nature we know explosions don't create order they create chaos (laughs) the terrorists could use this they could say "Well, well when we blow up places we're creating order no they're creating chaos they're creating destruction and such an ordered universe that one can predict the position of the different planets and stars thousands of years in the past and thousands of years in the future so these are all supernatural explanations So the very scientists who say, oh, it's childish and primitive to look for a supernatural explanation, they themselves come up with supernatural explanations. Of course, they come up with mechanistic, impersonal supernatural explanations, and we come up with loving, deliberate, intelligent, personal explanations, which is more logical and reasonable, according to our experience, which is more desirable. If we say that humans have a need to explain things and to understand things, don't we also have a need for love and for shelter and for caring, even the lower species do? Where would this come from if the universe was ultimately mechanical? I mean, Darwin's idea is simply the survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest through competition, ruthless competition where those with whom you compete are are killed. So is this the kind of society to which living beings are drawn? We see even among the killers there is affection between the parents and the children, often between the males and females. Some sense of affection. Where would that come from? Why would there be any need for affection? There are entities who reproduce without affection. There are entities who lay their eggs like guppies. They lay thousands of eggs, and if they're in the same vicinity as their children, they'll eat their children. And and there are still guppies in the world. There's mating without affection. What is it? Praying mantis who decapitates and devours the male after copulation. So one can have reproduction without affection one can have survival without affection it's not required. Yet we find affection pervades the world So where would that come from if the world was simply mechanical? Why would it exist? So scientists cannot explain this Therefore we can say this need this need to have a concept of God it's not simply something that humans create it's something that's a, a universal inner drive of a living being and has ample evidence in the world to support it and practically speaking no evidence to counter it the only evidence to counter the existence of a personal creator is the fact of suffering in the world. That we could say if there's a personal creator there wouldn't be suffering. Uh, but that even, even that is not very intelligent. Mothers and fathers, human mothers and fathers are persons who create their children and yet the parents cause the children things that the children perceive as suffering. You, know, you have to eat your broccoli and then you can have your gloved And the children think that's suffering. Or uh, you can't take the toy away from your baby brother. You have to give it back. And the older brother is screaming. Uh, You have to get in the car now. We're going to the store. I don't want to go. (laughs) And they're screaming. So even in our experience, personal loving creators have situations where those they create and care for may experience suffering. So also logically not only is there an innate drive to understand God but also logically the creator must be before the creation. Therefore the creator cannot be a creation of the creation. God cannot be simply our invention if he is the first cause. Anadhyar Adi govinda sarva karana The very definition of God is the greatest who has no equal or greater, the cause who has no cause, the first. So how can a first be the creation of the second? The painting doesn't create the artist. The building doesn't create the architect. The children don't create the parents. I mean, it is a fact that if you don't know your parents you may imagine them to be in various ways children who grow up not knowing their real parents they create some fantasy story about them which is probably untrue but they don't create their parents so God having existed before the creation we cannot we're not imagining him. It's a very simple argument. Very simple, very logical, very straightforward. And here we have in the Bhagavatam for those who take the Vedas and the Puranas as evidence, a small portion of the population certainly, but for those who take the Shastras as evidence, Ryanapuro Vyaktat. So here we have the Lord speaking to Brahma before the creation. Now Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur says that in this chapter so Prabhupada is referencing Bhagavatam 2.9. And Advaita Chakravarti Thakur says that the chapter sloka was in the first day of Lord Brahma, the Brahma Kalpa. The verses starting with aham eva sam eva gre. And the conversation we just read about in this chapter, 3 9, happened in the Padma Kalpa, which is the last day of the previous half of Brahma's life. Vishnu Chakavadi Thakur says there's another four essential verses in this chapter, 3 9, which are 32, 33, 41, and 42. So, in both of these instances, in, in Bhagavatam 2 9 and Bhagavatam here, 3 9, We have a conversation that's happening between the Lord and Brahma before the creation. And, of course, we have the descriptions of the Lord before the creation of Brahma also. So this is further evidence that the Lord exists before the creation. He's not a creation. When Hiranyakashipu got the benediction that he would not be killed by any living entities created by Brahma, he says, or those not created by you, those created by another Brahma And this is one of the points that Lord Brahma brought out when he saw Lord Dasingadev. He said that Hiranyakashipu had asked me, don't let anyone I've created or anyone I haven't created kill me. He said, and you are not created by me nor created by anyone else. So that which we seek, all of us are seeking ultimately, is beyond our material experience. We're all seeking the first cause. You know, if you talk to little children, usually it happens about three years old, that they start asking why. And when they ask why, you get to a point that there's not an answer. You know? Why do you have that chair? Because I like to sit down. Why do you like to sit down? Because it's relaxing. Why do you want to be relaxed? You, know, you, you get to a point that there, you, there, there's, no, there's no answer. It gets very frustrating that which we seek is beyond these material answers the ultimate why why am I here why do I suffer why do I have this, why do I have that why is everything the way it is what is beyond it's in another uh, reality the, the real reality one could say I mean, in one sense everything here is real but not what it appears to be and that's where we should go in fact, in the chapter slope, Shlok, that's exactly what the Lord says. Right? He says, the person who is searching after the supreme absolute truth, the personality of Godhead, must certainly search for it up to this in all circumstances, in all space and time, and both directly and indirectly. This should be, whatever we're doing, we should be searching for God. I mean, superficially, we may have to ask, hey, have you seen my phone? Where did I put it? You may have to ask, you know, I have this disease. What do I do to get cured? We may have to ask, you know, I've damaged my relationship with this person. How do I fix it? How do I get a good job? And so forth, all these sort of questions. We may have to ask those sort of questions. But overall, the purpose of our asking those questions should always be to find the Lord, and ultimately our question should be to find the Lord. That should be the purpose of our life. To possess the unpossessable. He who can disappear and will disappear at will over and over again. To possess Him. That should be our aspiration. Then we understand everything. Not in a static way, because Krishna is always expanding. Not, okay, now I understand everything, now let me go on, do something more. But then everything becomes revealed to us as the sun, the sun is now rising here, lights up everything. You know, when I started the class, the sky here was dark. Couldn't see any colors. Now the sun is out. And we seek that which is beyond that should be the goal of our life. And anyone who isn't doing that in life, we have to say, say, they're, they're really not different from an animal. Animals have their societies, their families, their tools, their language, their affection, their homes, their enemies, their leaders. I'm trying to elect a president now, animals have leaders. Among the wolves, they have their alpha male and alpha female. Some of the animals have leaders. And there's contests. <laughs> and the, the young male challenges the older male, challenges the incumbent. Well, that's All of that is there. There's wars fighting over territory, so many things. Among the chimps, there's wars between tribes. If We don't inquire into the essence if we take that inner human drive. Who am I? Why am I here? Who is God? Where is God? And we suppress it, or we decide it cannot be answered, or we subscribe to the modern ideas that the supernatural is mechanistic and cold and impersonal. kevalam then there's no point to our lives from a material perspective without God consciousness without finding the cause of causes There's no point at all to our life. What can we do? What can we do? Our our so-called positive, negative impact on the world, even if we have a great positive or negative impact on the world, even if we become one of the handful of people who really make a difference in the world, that difference is lost. you can do a, a huge cleaning of your house but you know what, it'll get dirty again and you can make your house into a rubbish heap and your house is going to be destroyed whether it's clean or it's a rubbish heap whether we pollute the planet whether we clean the planet whether we have great wars whether we create peace on the material level it doesn't matter anyway butva butva for, but for The Lord will come and like a little child who builds something out of blocks and then knocks it over. Our good things, our bad things, all finished with no meaning. So let us seek that uh, which is beyond the senses. Let us look for the place having gone uh, we do not return to this world of illusion. Let us seek the Lord. Having understood him, everything else becomes clear. Let us have him as our possession, which we have eternally, rather than so many of our possessions. where simply rot and mold and thieves take them away. So thank you very much. A few questions. Oh, I had my recorder off, so you were asked about renunciation. Wanting to enjoy renunciation, it's not really any different than wanting to enjoy wealth or beauty or fame. I mean, in one sense, you can say the jnani is higher than the karmi. And desires for liberation are higher and more spiritual than desires for material enjoyment, but there's still me at the center. And there's still, I want to be the most wonderful. How you want to be the most wonderful? One person wants to be the most wonderful criminal. Another person wants to be the most wonderful philanthropist. Another person wants to be the most wonderful peacemaker. Another person wants to be the most wonderful saintly person. There's this really interesting uh, purport. Let's see if I can find this quickly. It's something that can meditate on in this regard. So this is in Prabhupada's purport to 13.22 of the Bhagavad-gita, where Krishna says, Purusha prakriti jan karanam mm-hmm. guna-sangasya yoni janmashu. The living entity of material nature, thus follows the ways of life, enjoying the three modes of material nature. This is due to his association with that material nature. Thus he meets with good and evil amongst various species. Shiluprava says here in the purport, Due to his desire to lord it over material nature, he is put into such undesirable circumstances. Under the influence of material nature, the entity is born sometimes as a demigod, sometimes as a man, sometimes as a beast, as a bird, as a worm, as an aquatic, as a saintly man, as a bug. This is going on. And in all cases, the living entity thinks himself to be the master of his circumstances, yet he's under the influence of material nature. And you are thinking, well, why is Prabhupada putting saintly man into that list? That can be for many, for most people who become religious people, saintly people, another way of trying to exploit material nature. Another way of trying to, Lord, I'm going to be the most renounced. I'm going to be the most pious. I'm going to be the most religious. Even if they're detached from the honor from others for being the most religious, that can be their mood. I I want to be the most, I want to be, I am saintly. That's also an impati. I am renounced. Now in bhakti, jnana and vairagya are not jnana, vairagya, and varnashram. Sri Rupa Goswami explains this in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that Jnan vairagya and varnashram are not prerequisites for bhakti you do not have to have Jnan vairagya and be expert in varnashram and then do bhakti thinking like that is either Jnan misra bhakti or karma misra bhakti if you think first i have to become expert in varnashram then i can do bhakti that's karma misra bhakti if you think, first I have to be expert in knowledge and detachment, and then I can do bhakti, that's measure Bhakti. And in fact, Rupa Goswami says that those who are qualified for bhakti are neither too attached nor too detached. Because if you're too detached, you can't engage in Yukta Vairagya. You can't see everything in relationship with Krishna. One who sees everything in relationship with the Lord never hates anything nor any being. You can't do that. However, yan, vairagya, and piety automatically accrue to one who's in bhakti. Someone who's in bhakti is automatically a pious person. People who are advanced in bhakti, naturally, they don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal. People who are advanced in bhakti naturally have knowledge. People who are advanced in, in bhakti naturally have renunciation. Not as a material opulence. As such is explained very nicely, I believe... I think it's the story of Jiva Maharaj or Prithu Maharaj, where it's explained that the opulence given by Krishna is not material due to karma; it's not entangling. So, uh, when the devotee gets knowledge and renunciation, that's not like the gani. When the devotee is pious, it's not like the karmi, because the devotee is not attached to that piety devotees attached to Krishna, if the devotees were attached to piety, the young gopis wouldn't run away from their houses in the middle of the night to the forest if the devotees were attached again then they wouldn't forget that Krishna is God to serve him and even renunciation, I gave this example before, that in Jiva Goswami's Madhava Mahotsava Shrimati Radharani Says, all right, everybody's liberated. Anyone who's bound is liberated, and her friends become very upset. They said, we don't want to renounce you. We don't want to be independent of you. Krishna may renounce us, but we're never going to renounce him. Sometimes they, they talk like that, you know, well, let's talk about something other than Krishna. He can stop talking about us, but we can't start, stop talking about him. So the devotees are not attached to renunciation. Or knowledge or piety when it's an impediment to their Krishna consciousness. They're attached to Krishna. All right, what if the chunk is Pradhan, but Pradhan doesn't come from nothing? I mean, there's something in the Vedic explanation of creation that has some slight correlation to what they're talking about in the sense that the universe starts off very small and expands and it starts off as a compacted seed just like even in ordinary life there is a seed that's very very small that produces a plant of course there's outside resources that enter into that seed now you, you have uh, with some eggs for example there aren't any during the incubation period so the bird produces an egg well, except for the, the warmth warmth. that has to come from outside the egg. So even then, the warmth can come by burying, you know, sometimes the birds, the turtles, they bury the eggs for the warmth of the earth, or they sit on the eggs to give them warmth. So even then, there's something. The seeds require water and warmth. So to have a chunk in the beginning of the universe that didn't require any uh, outside intervention... They're they're seeing something about the universe expanding, and they're seeing something about the concept of a seed that has instructions. But all of that requires intelligence. And if they're saying that this this chunk that exploded came from nothing, exploded on its own, and created order on its own without any personal intelligence, so that's that's what's absurd. Anybody else? Um, Thank you very much for your questions, Harshman.
1: You, know, you posed a, a lot of interesting questions. One of which you said was the biggie, that um, why do we suffer? And I think most of us in the Sun could handle that question pretty well. But one of the questions you asked was, um, I was wondering how you deal with this one. Because I was thinking, how would I ask it? And I was kind of coming up with a blank. Why does anything exist? So it almost sounds like an absurd question but you know it's a question that could be asked why well,
0: does anything exist it was a question that was asked I would refer you to the conversation that Srila Prabhupada had um, it was somewhere in South America where he was with some sort of philosophical quasi-spiritual society and they asked him that question they said why is there anything so I, I would refer you to that whole conversation to study that Prabhupada's answer was happiness his answer to that was Ananda the purpose of everything is pleasure again if you want more of an explanation I, I would suggest you read Prabhupada's detailed explanation that he gave to that question Caracas, Venezuela was that conversation.
1: I have a question if you have time. Yes. Uh, at the beginning of the class you were referring to how Krishna is detached and supremely um, independent even up to the Golgans the residents of government. He can leave at any time. He does. So, I've been waiting to ask this a long time yeah. Um, you know, when Uddhava gave the message to the gopis, uh, uh, Krishna's uh, uh, message was that I've never left you, I think it's his uh, Baba form. Yes. If you remember Krishna as Leela Smaran, then Krishna's present there. And they were completely satisfied that by the instruction of Uddhava. I don't understand how they can be satisfied with that because the only way that you can think about Krishna uh, in that form is that he's all-pervading. You know, He's either the super-soul, or he's in his Vasudev teacher being all-pervading. So if they have the relationship of mother and son, lover-beloved, or, or like the coward boys, simply by thinking, Krishna, how they've got to think of him as God, so how can they at the same time think of him as uh, the all-pervading... Well,
0: they certainly weren't you know, satisfied for very long and they complained to Krishna at Kurukshetra you know that I think it was Uddhava who taught kyan and Krishna Kurukshetra who taught yoga I may be having it reversed uh, but they, they weren't satisfied for very long They were they were pacified for a little while okay Krishna's here philosophically speaking but then again they went on crying I mean, it's like in the Rasa Lila, when, when the gopis first came and Krishna said, just go home and meditate on me. It's not physical proximity. And the the Yajit Brahmanis, they took that, but the gopis didn't.
1: Oh, okay. All right, because I, yeah, I was thinking, uh, uh, how in the world does that work? But of course, in our material condition, you have to understand these things.
0: I yeah, I mean, they were, they were satisfied briefly You know, there was, there was some Okay It wasn't, it wasn't that after Uddhava spoke to them Then they were just like, okay, fine They complained later to Krishna Kurukshetra about it That was a very nice question Anybody else? Say okay, thank you, Srila Prabhupada, Gijai.